Welcome to the Good Start Podcast. I'm Barney Nelson with another amazing story of how blockchain is being used to change people's lives. There are 1 billion people in the world today without an identity, many of whom are refugees. Even if they have food and shelter, how on earth do these billion people get an education, a job, or even access to finance? Equally, how can organizations and businesses look after them when they know nothing about them? Working with refugees in Kenya, the organization Gravity is helping individuals to take control of their identities, creating mobile data wallets for people's phones where they can log, store, and share personal data whenever they apply for education, for healthcare, or even for a SIM card. Because it's on the blockchain, the data can't be tampered with, but Gravity has also gone to huge lengths to make sure that the people entering the data can be trusted as much as the technology itself. The result? Refugees who can create and manage their own identities as a first step towards taking back their place in society. It's a real pleasure to have Johannes here from Gravity to explain how this works. It's a pleasure to have Johannes Ebert with me today from Gravity and based in Nairobi. Johannes, maybe we can just start by describing the problem as you, as you saw it ultimately when you started at Gravity. Yes, First of all, thanks for having me. It's true that the digital identity problem has gained a lot of traction. There's these figures out there, 1.7 billion unbanked globally, 1 billion people without an identity, aid budget for refugees decreasing every year. But in Kenya, for example, the number of refugees that depend 100% on aid is actually not decreasing. So self-reliance, dignity of choice, these things are super high on the agenda. And this creates also lots of confusion, I think. So there's, on one hand, I think the legal identity part. So lots of people don't have a legal identity. That is an issue that governments eventually have to solve. The technology bit is not the limiting factor here. But then there's the wider sense of identity. What can I prove about myself that goes beyond uh, just my date of birth or my name? And that is where digital identity and systems that allow to aggregate uh, trusted credentials can have a big impact. So for the refugee case, for example, if a refugee arrives in the camp, obviously they are completely, most of the time, especially in East Africa, they are very much unknown. They don't even have an ID credential. So they are registered by UNHCR. They take a biometric and then add some attributes that the individual basically self-claims, like my name is this and this is my child. And I am this old. And then it's basically the government's responsibility to issue legal identities for these people so that they can access services for which official government issued identities are required, like financial and telecommunication services, etc. But many governments, they are quite slow with that. So refugees are there for years. They don't have a legal identity. Yep. So the economy develops informally. And, and that makes it very difficult because... Very little is known then about this huge population of then hundred thousands of people. Uh, what is known is not very reliable. It's basically the self-claimed data from the beginning. So it's hard for private businesses, for aid organizations, or even government to provide their services. If people don't have identities from the government and therefore able to access the kind of traditional economy, they get stuck with the only alternative being the grey economy, um, as you said, of alternatives within the camps. Yeah. And, you know, the systems seem to work quite well, actually, the informal system. So Kakuma is a whole microeconomy in itself. There was a World Bank report that was released last year, etc. But of course, it would be much better to integrate them in the formal economy for them also maybe to graduate from I get my credit for my savings group to I get my 
I get a business credit from a bank or something or a digital lender to actually mm. scale up my business. Presumably, and that's what keeps the, the 400 million unbanked. It keeps them unbanked. So presumably, that's what gravity is for, right? Yes, that's what gravity is for. What do these stakeholders, businesses, aid organizations, governments, they need to know in order to serve their products, to employ these people? And what, on the other hand, do the refugees need to prove to be economically included? Mm. Do they save? How much do they save? Do they own a business? Mm. What services do they use? Do they go to school? What are their skills? If I'm a private business, I want to move into a refugee camp. What skills are there? And all these things are, are unknown. Gravity is about empowering individuals by providing them a means to aggregate credentials about their identity, the personal data, all these things that I mentioned that stakeholders need to know, they are often already somewhere. Either they are not yet digital, like NGOs train lots of refugees and skills are created, but the skill creation, the credentials, they are not, they're not digitized, they are not handed over to the refugee. They are maybe in the UNHCR database. But oh. if an individual had a self-storage wallet where they could pick from all these different sources and even their neighbors and their community leaders could make statements and issue credentials to their wallet, then we see a potential for them to build like a rich kind of economic profile that then can be accessed by all kinds of other services. So essentially, if a refugee is reliant on a number of providers for healthcare, education, uh, banking services, whatever it is, gravity exists to be able to strengthen the bridge between the refugee and those institutions. Right. It's kind of like the, the interoperable layer between mm. all these services. But instead of building a centralized database, the point of aggregation is the individual's wallet. So effectively, the, 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 the individual takes control of their data, building it and getting it validated such that it becomes useful. Yes, exactly. I mean, obviously, the, the major question then is how do you how do you go about doing that? What does the actual platform look like that facilitates that bridge? There is the, the wallet platform, basically, where individuals can create a wallet that can be securely stored in a cloud so they can access it with a, a basic phone and do basic operations with the USSD menu or it's an, it's an app, a smartphone app, in which case data can be stored also only exclusively on the smartphone. So we build an education product, for example, easy for, for an NGO or even a university to sign up, define credentials that mm. takes like minutes and then be able to issue digital credentials. Education is, uh, is an important, important thing. So having trusted education credentials, especially for a refugee that are reconciled mm. on their wallet with maybe their UNHCR ID mm. is important in case they want to apply for a scholarship, which is, you know, a high impact identity transaction, if you wish. If you yeah. can't do that because there's a mismatch or something, your life takes a completely different trajectory. So and then also, of course, it's, it's a way to also get standardized education data because, you know, credentials and achievements can be stored on these wallets and then accessed from the outside. You have your kind of central pool, if you like, of, of, of data, and then you have an education app, and there might be a healthcare one, there might be other ones that are all tailored to the specific ecosystem of that, that industry. Is that right? That's right. Like savings groups, they can digitize a business. The members of your savings group can look at their accounts on a simple interface, and you have a better bookkeeping and that is the product you would sell and uh, that feeds into the wallet, yes. The fundamental question here is trust. It's, it's one thing to, to publish a lot of information and LinkedIn and Facebook and all those things have a lot of information, but the actual the trust element is, is the make or break here, I assume, right? 
yes, trust in terms of the user's trust in how their data is stored and that they actually have full agency. And then the other trust in relying parties' trust in these credentials based on being able to prove that they come from a certain entity. So where does blockchain come into that then? So blockchain itself serves as the registry, if you wish. No data is stored on a blockchain, but if a transaction is being made, like you make a statement about me, you know, doing that podcast, this is issued to my wallet as a credential, then uh, the hash of this transaction of the statement would be stored on a blockchain. And then it's essentially a, a registry. Someone else can look up, hey, did this transaction actually happen? And people could verify that actually you issued that credential. If there were more registries that would be accessible, like if I I'm an employer and someone applies for a job and uh, they send their university certificate. Uh, There are very few universities where you can go to, I don't know, verify.nameofuniversity.com and check, hey, did this person actually put in like their diploma number or something and be like, hey, did they actually graduate from university and stuff? So in principle, we could have a, a centralized registry that would already be quite useful. Now, the benefit that comes with blockchain is that it, uh, it provides also a temper proof. So I know that once I put something on the uh, registry proof of transaction, it cannot be changed. And that is that is the big benefit. And the other benefit is it's decentral. So no one entity needs to host that registry and would okay. then have the data agency over that registry. So that's the big benefit of blockchain. Here. So it's essentially it's tam- tamper proof, but ultimately also there's no single institution that needs to vouch for the authenticity of the data. It's Essentially, it's self-evident because it's all it, the transactions are all recorded transparently on on the blockchain. Yes, exactly. So basically, if I write a statement on the blockchain now, then I won't be able to change it later. The thing is that I could still make up something and write it there, and it could be wrong. And that is something that blockchain cannot provide in that case. It can only provide it if the check of the actual data is part of the protocol. Mm -hmm. So there we have to add another layer. And our other layer is that same attributes can be validated by different entities around you. And these entities do have different trust values. So it's not the same if uh, your cousin says you're 19 years old than if it's your community leader. Or if it's an entity that is an official trust entity enlisted by UNHCR in the trust scheme. To every identity attribute, we can attach a level of trust. I'm Barney Nilsson. I hope you're enjoying this Good Start podcast. So far, we've heard about the big picture and the reasons why blockchain was a necessary part of the solution. We're going to go on now to hear about the practicalities of using blockchain and using the solution in the real world. Before we do, though, one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast is to make sure that you have a chance to get involved. So please do reach out. If you'd like to get in touch or involved in any way, look us up on thevalueexchange.co slash goodstart or friend us on Facebook or LinkedIn. Thanks and back to the podcast. Presumably then, pre-gravity, you've got a, a refugee who wants to go into higher education and ultimately is scrambling around to be able to demonstrate their academic credentials. 
with gravity. They have an identity validated by trusted people, so the UNHCR or uh, village elders, and ultimately they can share the right data attributes with the university, for example, in order to be able to pass straight into the kind of traditional economy that we're talking about at the beginning. Yes, so the very specific case of applying for university education with gravity You have your diploma from your secondary school institution and for the uh, for simplicity, assume they've issued it digitally on your wallet. Then you can request from UNHCR, for example, mm. to validate that or a trust entity that has been endorsed by UNHCR. Mm. So this gives the digital attestation for this document. And then also UNHCR from the Prime's database, they will submit a couple of basic identity attributes about you your name, et cetera, et cetera. And with these collections of credentials that are, you know, certified or tested by these trust entities, you can then share it with uh, a higher education institution. And this is actually something UNHCR are looking into building. So they are aware that also in order to leverage what they already collect in terms of identity data, mm. digital wallets is sort of like the way to go because they can't just go ahead and share it with everyone. They have to go through the individual. Which is the polar opposite of what's being built out in certain countries where you're having in you know, China or India, for example, very centralized databases who ostensibly aim for the same objective, but don't put the individual in control of the data, if I understand correctly. Yeah, that's true. That's the opposite of decentralized wallet architecture, mm. uh, where, of course, it is very convenient to aggregate everything in one place because then every business, every bank can tap in for their credit scoring, for their marketing etc. etc. It's just mm -hmm. that the security cannot be provided. And of course, if the entity that controls this huge database that records every aspect of your life can do very powerful and very uh, frightening things. Presumably also the availability and the standardization of this data must also help um, aid organizations, governments and everything to provide services back into the refugee community but through kind of more transparency and more intelligent or structured information. Is that right? Yeah, of course. If you contribute and others contribute to a person's wallet, then you get the benefit as an organization as well out of it. If you are an organization that works maybe in, 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 in health and you contribute to a person's, well, I don't know, health profile and UNHCR adds like ID attributes and also ID attributes are added through the community. And now as this health organization, you want to do a cash transfer, maybe for, you know, pregnant mothers or there's a disease or something. Well, then you can use these attributes that weren't necessarily provided by you. But you can request them from these wallets. So this is the, really the, the interoperability part. So you don't need to aggregate everything in decentralized database for millions of people mm. if you have a layer where it can be aggregated for each individual. What's the journey been like so far? What have the kind of the unexpected been, particularly in terms of the technology and the applying it to the real world? The journey for, for us, it's, it's been that we've looked a lot at KYC in the beginning. How can we provide alternative KYC based on you know identity data that is validated through the community, etc.? But really, there is a legal block. Some businesses simply are required or want to have this level of assurance that a legal identity brings. And so we moved a bit away from that and widened the definition of identity to, you know, basically all kinds of attributes around what businesses people have and if they employ someone or what kind of skills they have. And then we spent some time in Kakuma and uh, we have a partner there who works in education. We decided to go for more like a product-driven approach, prove the concept that people can aggregate data 
can store digital credentials from different sources and get for a restricted user base a very wide economic profile. So we use education as an entry point, youth development, uh, NGOs, etc. And then prove that this is useful for organizations, in particular, you know, cash transfer programs that always have a certain list of attributes that have to be verified for an individual to be eligible. Mm. And um, that's what we're doing now. So in Kakuma, we're just rolling out that, that education product where we also have a component that collects like standardized test data because there's a lack of globally standardized education outcome data. So start with the unregulated side of the world and make sure that people can get access to education and the slightly easier targets and then move up into the purely regulated space as and when legally you're allowed to go there, I guess. Yes, exactly. And I think with this kind of data, there's already lots to be done. If yeah. you think also about things like, you know, if you can bring that money to verified wallets, maybe young university graduates that want to start a business, etc. Etc. Et and mm. the party providing this financing or the funding doesn't need to know this person in, in person because they can see the verifiable credentials and interesting use case where you don't need to get into the space of like legal identities and all that. It's like an avalanche almost that you, you start with identity for education, let's say, but as you build out the identity around that, presumably it accumulates its own momentum where two thirds of the identity for education could easily flow into healthcare or flow into creditworthiness or, or other areas. And so, you know, ultimately it takes on a, a little bit of a life of its own eventually. At least I hope so. But yeah, I think you have to make sure you find content consumers for your data. Insurance, for example, there's lots and lots and lots of potential to customize insurance plans to especially low-income individuals, make it more affordable and make it therefore accessible to them. But mm. there needs to be a little bit of verifiable data in order to be able to do so. So moving back then to the individual, I mean, you know, obviously there's benefits in gathering and validating this data. If I'm a refugee and I want to be able to go into university, but what reactions have you had from individuals? Because if somebody came to me and said, I'm going to put your data, I'm going to use the blockchain to help store it. It's going to be wonderful. Presumably it's not an easy sell, is it? What doesn't work is to try to tell them the story of the digital identity wallet. It has to be the product as well. So in the education case, it could be just a USSD or an SMS interaction to see the credentials you have and to provide consent to sharing it. So that works quite well. In that journey towards having a kind of complete and rich data set on as many people as possible, how do you see the, the question of interoperability between, for example, your data sets and other data sets to be able to fast track the benefits of this? For example, if 100 people are all going and setting up you know, some form of, of an identity, whether they use blockchain or not, frankly, you still end up with 100 different isolated data sets. That's like the blockchain protocols, the different blockchain protocols. Exactly. And so all you end up doing is moving Old, one problem from old technology to the same problem on new technology. So it sparkles a bit more, but ultimately it's still the same problem. Every business, every service, every organization yeah. creates an identity for persons. Yeah. The question is, how do you reconcile all these identities? Even if you only had a wallet where the identifiers of each of these systems would be stored, that would already be not bad for a start, you know. But don't think it's the main challenge in the beginning. In the UNHCR case, just having a, someone that takes a picture of your paper certificate and then issues a, a blockchain attestation for it is enough. And there doesn't need to be a standard. If you send to your bank, you send your company registration certificate from a different country, there's also no standardization. Yes, that's true. It's easy to overcomplicate this, isn't it, really? 
Looking ahead then, so scale is obviously one question, but how does the next 12, 24 months play out for you in terms of how gravity evolves? We are focused on this uh, rollout for refugees. We mm. want to do way more in terms of uh, user research, how people feel about this concept, about data sharing, etc., etc. Mm. And we will try to test P2P cash transfers and health is a big point. So I think we'll focus on scaling the education bit, uh, widening the scope in Kakuma, and we want to look into uh, health and, um, ca- and cash transfers as well. Great. In summary, if I understand it right, identity is essentially the, the stumbling block between camp life and, and traditional life. Pre-gravity, you had refugees ultimately struggling to make the jump into the traditional economy and being trapped in in the kind of the camp economy. But through building the bridges between the NGO and the individual in the camp, those re- those same refugees can now get access to services and goods that they just couldn't get access to before, and and hence participate more in the in the in the economies of the countries where they find themselves. Quite the journey. I really look forward to uh, to hearing about how how the next twelve months do play out. So really, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. I'm Barney Nelson, and thanks for listening to this week's Good Start episode. Next week, there'll be another amazing story about how blockchain is being used for good. And so make sure to join us then. In the meantime, if you'd like to get involved, look us up on thevalueexchange.co slash goodstart or on LinkedIn or Facebook. Thanks, and see you next week. Thanks.